At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 117th episode of the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about conservation, how to do it right, and how to do it wrong. And uh, I have a good how to do it wrong story that features me as the key protagonist in a very self-deprecating and uh, unfortunate manner. And I'll get to that in, in a moment, but you know... I think we can all agree that it's okay to point out when somebody is doing something wrong in the environment. Somebody who is poaching, somebody who is maybe using bait when they shouldn't be using bait, somebody who's keeping fish over the limit, somebody who is having poor fish handling practices. Now, I don't know where you sit on the political spectrum or on the moral spectrum, but let's just stop and realize that no matter where you fall along that continuum, if you are a fly fisher, and chances are, if you're any sort of angler or outdoors person or interested party that is listening to a podcast about fly fishing, you understand that there is an agreed upon ethos that although there is some flexibility within those parameters, we agree there are things that you should not do. So let that sink in for a moment, and, and you know, I guess I would just call you to consistency. Um, if you say that you can do right things and wrong things on the water with a fish, that hopefully you're being consistent across the rest of your life and the rest of your worldview. I believe there are moral absolutes. And if you don't believe there are moral absolutes, then who are you to tell someone they can't catch fish out of a river and they can't keep those fish and they can't snag those fish? Um, I believe you can't snag fish out of most rivers. I believe that you can't keep fish out of catch-and-release-only streams. I believe you can't use bait and treble hooks and fly-fishing-only waters. But uh, I also believe that there's moral absolutes. So uh, that's a minute of, of philosophy that uh, you, you might want back. But I do think it's important to just put that out there. It's something I've been thinking about as I have been uh, putting some thoughts together regarding this podcast. So can you confront somebody on the river? Can you talk to somebody on, at the parking lot about maybe what they were doing that was wrong? I would argue yes. Now, here's, the, here's my big caveat. Be smart about it. Don't be a cavalier. Don't be a jerk. Don't try to get yourself into a conflict. You're already engaging in lowercase c conflict. There is no sense in uh, stirring up capital C conflict where you might come to blows or even just really harsh words. Because uh, remember, what's the purpose? 
with the purpose to show somebody they're an idiot, even if they are walking from that stream with a dead 20-inch trout over their finger, blood running down their arm, big grin on their face, are you going to improve the stream or that fish's existence or the person's existence or even just the community by really laying into that person and chewing them out? The fish is already dead. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying that there ought not be any sort of restitution if, if the certain circumstances um, uh, come together to, to make that happen. But are you going to change that person's attitude, mindset, and conservation mentality by laying into them and treating them like they're an idiot or a moron or a felon? Now, technically, they could be a felon given the circumstances, but you know, unless you are a federal wildlife official... Is that for you to do? Is this a citizen's arrest kind of situation? And even then, this is an extreme situation that we're talking about. More often than not, you're going to have opportunities for gentle words of encouragement. Now, if that sounds a little sissified to you, uh, if that sounds a little bit weak and, and uh, you know not heavy-handed enough, let me give you an example. So I was fishing on a spring creek in Pennsylvania, and there's, I mean, there's, you know, countless of them. It doesn't really matter which one it was, but this is a stream that is clearly marked catch and release, fly fishing only, and it gives a list of what you can and can't use as far as lures and flies go, uh, and, and where you can and can't go. There's waiting restrictions and things like that. But to be fair, most people... Most people in our, our country, but certainly most people in our world, they're not looking at those signs. They're not paying attention to all of the details. They see people fishing, and they think, that's a place I can go fishing, particularly if they have kids, particularly if they haven't fished for a long time. If they're not an avid angler, if they're not somebody who is doing what we're doing by engaging in this type of media, if they're just wanting to go out and catch a fish because they want to catch a fish, they want to have their kid catch a fish, then they're not going to figure things out as much as we would expect somebody to now that we're in the know. There truly is an in-group, out-group dynamic here that we have to remember when we have these conversations and we think about conservation. Now, some things are common sense. It is just not ethical to bang a fish against a rock just for the fun of it and leave it there. Hopefully, most people know that. Certainly some people don't. But again, within reason, there's a lot of things that you just can't expect people to know or think about if they're not an outdoors person. If they just grab grandpa's fishing rod and head out to a stream and put a worm on a hook, there's a very good chance that they have no clue what the regulations are. They probably are aware they need a fishing license. But beyond that, they're not going to page through every uh, you know regulation that comes in that guide that you get uh, for the states that still give out those guides. They might hop online, buy a fishing license, print it off, put it in their pocket, grab you know can of corn, worm, bobber, fishing rod, and go out. And they might pop up in your favorite Pennsylvania Spring Creek, which is precisely what happened on this particular day. I had gotten there only a few minutes earlier, and I was fishing uh, upstream of the parking lot, and these people pulled in, and they didn't pull into the parking lot. So they pulled in just kind of along the side of the stream, and I, I can picture in my mind right now, there was no way for them to have seen the signs that said, catch and release, fly fishing only, and then no live bait, no bait at all, all that sort of stuff. They hopped out of their car, and I mean, just by where they parked, I thought, well, this is kind of peculiar. This isn't usually how people fish here. And I kept 
doing my thing and fishing my drift and watching my fly and trying to get everything where it was supposed to be and just wasn't having a lot of success. And also, that's the other thing. Don't get surly just because you're not catching fish. That will really uh, flavor your words and your attitude if you're not catching fish. So just be, be aware of that and be careful of that. So they walk on down to the stream, and the one guy is still rigging up in the back of the, the pickup. And the, the first gentleman uh, hops in the water with his hip waders. Well, he's ankle deep, and I, I look over at him, and uh, he, he kind of just acknowledges me with a little head nod, and he's, he's definitely got a jar of power bait. And I realize, okay, this isn't good. This is against the law. And moreover, this is a relatively fragile stream. And this just isn't a a good situation. And they didn't look imposing. They didn't look threatening. They weren't packing heat from all, you know, initial visible assessments. And I have a relatively casual demeanor. So I kind of walked over and I said, hey, uh, what you doing? They said, oh, we're we're fishing. I said, okay, just FYI. um, First of all, you're actually not supposed to wade here. It's actually kind of dangerous just because it's a lot of silt. And, uh, you know, with hip waders especially, you're going to get wet. And that's not going to be fun. Um, And also... Uh, you can't be using that power bait. I said, I'm sure it would do really, really well here, and and that's probably why they don't want you using it because there's a lot of fish in this stretch, but downstream there's not a whole lot of fish, and so you know if, it'd be kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. And and just you know, I I took a a, a very positive approach to it. Um, you know, trying to explain, showing that I'm not the expert, but and he said okay, and he just kept on doing his thing. I thought, oh man, well. This is, this is before I had a cell phone, or if I did have a cell phone at this point in time, uh, there wasn't cell service at this stream because it was pretty far out there. So I kind of kept fishing, and, and I, I moved upstream, and his buddy was still rigging up, up up at the car, and this is what made me think that, you know what, these people probably don't know what they're doing. And this guy had been trying to tie a knot for a long time. Now, if he was trying to tie a fly on, uh, if, if this was a kid in a stream where you could be using this kind of gear, I might go up and offer a helping hand, but I wasn't going to be, um, you know, part of uh, enabling them to, to do something illegal. And furthermore, this first guy hadn't even cast yet. So the one guy's still up on the, the road getting rigged up. The other guy's wading out deeper and deeper with his hip waders, and I know that he's one or two steps away from from trouble, and he hasn't even cast yet. He's still molding his uh, bait onto his his hook and just kind of getting all situated, and that's when it happened. He did take that one step, and he took one step too far, and looking at it, I mean, there's all this, this aquatic vegetation just over the silt, and it looks just like a totally normal stream bottom. But once again, that's one of those things where if you fish, you know kind of what's up. This guy must not have fished. Probably didn't know what was up. If he did fish, he maybe just fished ponds and expected to be hitting a hard bottom with a few inches under that silt. But at least two feet, and I can say that from personal experience, of silt before he hit a rock. And he went down. And if you've ever gone down in hip waders, especially like those canvas hip waders, you know it's it's a fight. Uh, you you know you're not drowning if you're only in uh, a couple feet of water, but it feels like you're being sucked into the center of the earth. And this guy was flailing around and, and uh, it was funny. I mean, the whole upper part of his body from his like armpits up were out of the water, but uh, he just couldn't get his footing and he was flailing around and his rod went in one place and his power bait went in the other direction and and it was funny because a little couple of chunks of power bait he was playing with went into the stream and he was making such a ruckus in this water and this 
big trout just kind of comes out from underneath a stump that was sticking out of the side of the bank and eats the power bait and goes away. And this guy's still flailing away. I'm watching this whole thing happen. And his buddy comes down and just kind of laughing and talking to him. And they make their way back up to the truck. The guy throws his gear in the, the back of the bed and takes his waders, turns them inside out, and just this you know silty, muddy water with little bits of aquatic vegetation come pouring out. And they throw that in and they drive off. And that was it. Now, I did see a fishing game uh, person later that day, and I said, hey, just FYI, a couple guys pick up truck using power bait down the stretch of the stream, and uh, they didn't get a chance to fish. They fell in. He had a good laugh about it, and he said, okay, I'll keep my eye on it. That was it. No huge confrontation, and things kind of took care of themselves. But again, I didn't get in a fist fight because I was unable to, and, and actually, to be honest with you, I chose not to go and find the authorities in that moment. I did what I thought was kind of an appropriate halfway measure. Now, that's what I would call a decent way of handling it. Uh, here's an example of not such a good way of handling it. I was fishing on another stream, also in Pennsylvania, catcher and Elise, and this one was not fly fishing only. And this is an example of fly fishers being presumptuous because this stretch was not fly fishing only. It was artificial lures only. So artificial lures, flies, single hook. And most people assumed it was fly fishing only. And consequently, people who had spinning gear would get chased off. Now, oftentimes, and this is maybe in a stereotype and overgeneralization, but I've found it to be very true. A lot of the folks that I saw getting berated by anglers or getting busted by the Fish and Boat Commission were people who were using spinning gear and who were using bait. So there, there is a, a true correlation there. But I was walking downstream along the path to get to where I wanted to fish on this particular river, and a father and a son were walking upstream. And the son just looked kind of downcast, and the dad was talking to him, and uh, I saw that he had spinning gear, and I said, oh, how are you guys doing today? And, and he said, oh, you know, this grumpy old man down in the next hole was really chewing, chewing out my son for using spinning gear. And I said, well, I mean, you can actually use spinning gear here. What 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 fly were you using or what, what lure were you using? And he, he showed me, and it was a little spoon. It was a little spoon with a single hook. And I said, you're totally within your right. I said, you know, you could crimp that barb down. That'd probably be the better thing to do. But really, I mean, you don't have to. Legally, you don't have to. And I said, well, what other lures and flies do you have? And he showed me. He didn't have a single tub of power bait, didn't have a single worm. There are a couple of rooster tails that did have treble hooks. And I said, you know, those would do really, really well here, but you, you're going to have to clip those hooks off uh, or just switch out the hooks. And but otherwise, just go at, go at it. You can fish here. And I said, seriously, look at the sign. We walked up to a sign. I showed him. And I said, you know, here's, here's a great little stretch. I said, actually, this is a stretch that for fly anglers would be really hard for us to get flies on here. And there's so many fish in this stream that you're not going to, you know, people shouldn't be upset by you fishing here like this. And they went in and, and uh, I, I didn't plan on being a guide for the day. So I said, just, you know, good luck. And if you guys need anything, I'll be fishing down here. Just don't hesitate to talk to me. And again, don't put up with anyone's uh, problems. And I said, there's usually a fishing boat commission guy up at uh, one of these parking lots. So if someone does give you a hard time, feel free to talk to them. And I said, you know, I know a number of the people here. So, you know, if, if someone's giving you a hard time, feel free to point them out and maybe I'll talk to them. But and I, I wished them well. And I saw them catch a couple of fish and he held it up and showed it to me, released the thing. Totally fine. Totally normal. And that's an example of probably how fly fishers kind of have the reputation that they have. This was a kid who was doing everything by the rules. His dad had taken the effort to get him out there, and somebody thought they knew what they were doing, 
just like the example, the first example, where these guys doing the wrong thing on a catch and release fly fishing only stream were doing the wrong thing out of ignorance. Here we had a fly angler out of ignorance of the actual rules or out of presumptive ignorance because of what he thought that they were. He was doing the wrong thing by telling this kid he couldn't fish. So an example of it being done okay, an example of it being done poorly. And I would say, you know, lean towards just being gracious. Realize not everybody spends the amount of effort and energy and time to go over the particulars and the minutia of regulations that you might. And you can even take it to another level and apply that to ethics. Okay, someone's using a really rough, old-style kind of uh, nylon net. Do you go over and just rip into them? Hopefully not. You know, could you mention it and say, hey, just uh, FYI, have you checked out these nets? They are lighter, they aren't going to tear, and they're going to be better on the fish. Just, Just letting you know. It's not your job to fix the world's fly fishing problems. Of course, if there's something that's being done that is against the law, then by all means, get a hold of that wildlife official, and they will take care of it. Um, but don't engage when you're out in the middle of the woods. That's never a good idea. Uh, I've had some people who are in wildlife uh, conservation law enforcement, and just the stories they have of people getting into fistfights and more because especially fly fishers think themselves as amateur uh, deputy wildlife officials. But how often do you do that in the world? When was the last time that you tried to pull somebody over for speeding? It's, we, it's good that we have the ownership of the resource, but be reasonable, be measured, be kind. And again, circling back around, if you have an absolute moral perception of what's happening on the water, are you being consistent about that in the rest of your life? But all right, I, I could talk about that for a long time, but we're not going to. All right, I said I was going to be deprecating, self-deprecating. Here we go. So young man, I was probably 16, 17, 18. I was driving at the time. So I uh, was definitely of that age. And I had just kind of gotten the shot in the arm of conservation ethics. I had gone from being a normal angler to a respectable uh, environmental steward slash angler. And I was really in that stage where I would have been in a cage, like, you know, let him cool down, let him let his fervor burn off for a little bit before he goes out in the world and he starts bothering people. So I was fishing on this warm water stream uh, close to my home. And we're catching smallmouth, catching largemouth, catching panfish, and just having a generally good time. And I come around the bend, and there is another teenager, didn't know him, probably from a different high school, and he has a bucket. And I immediately think, oh my goodness, you know, he might as well be dumping uh, some sort of caustic agent in the water and killing every fish from here and downstream. This is the worst thing I've seen in all of my years. Uh, he is keeping two to three fish. So I, I tell my buddy, say, oh, this is bad. We got to do something about this. And he was kind of in an equal place of just like, all right, we got to save the world. We got to save the planet. We got to save this fish. And so I'm, I walk past him and I think, oh, you know, what you got there? And I peeked in and sure enough, two or three bass. And they were probably just at that limit. They were maybe like 14 inches each and just swimming around and then like a bluegill at the bottom and starting to go belly up. And it's not good. Let's let me be clear. You know, if they were at or under the limit, was it ideal? No. But again, is this my job? Is this my responsibility, especially as a teenager who I don't know if I knew the regulations at that time? Well, I decided to take matters in my own hands. So I wished my buddy said, hey, check this out. 
And so I'm walking back and I say, hey, could you uh, lend me a, a pair of pliers I need to? And then I did this total three stooges flop on the, the side of the bank and I rolled and I didn't hit the bucket. So I rolled one more time and I hit the bucket and knocked it over to the stream. And oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And I, I'm, oh man, I'm so, so clumsy. And the fish are swimming away and the bluegill still tumbling upside down. And, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. And the guy just glared at me and grabbed his bucket and uh, I walked away. Didn't, didn't use the pliers, of course. But it's just an example of probably not doing things the right way. Very passive aggressive. Um, I don't think of myself as a passive aggressive person, but in that moment, that seemed like the, the best thing to do. It was kind of like a pragmatic ends justify the means. And that day, I, I saved that little uh, warm water stream from the, the dreaded poacher. Any good stories? Any bad stories? Do you have an example of maybe where you had a, a bad uh, conflict with somebody over your conservation ideals? Feel free to let me know. Again, in a couple episodes here, I'll use some reader emails and uh, social media chirps to make up the podcast. This week on castingacross.com, the first article was called Throwback Gear Review Sage VPS. The Sage VPS was a mid range fly rod that came out in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s. And it was one of my first fly rods. And I got it when I was in Arkansas. I'd been fishing the Little Red River and the White River. And I needed something a little bit more oomph than what I had been using in the Mid-Atlantic for brook trout. So this rod has been with me for now 23 years, maybe. And I still use it quite a bit. So this is a review of the rod along with a couple of uh, little anecdotes thrown in there, so check that out. And then Wednesday is the third and final part of a semi-narrative, semi-fictional, uh, semi-fly-fishing story called Five Minutes More and One Last Cast. So this is the third part. So the last three Wednesdays, I've put parts of this out, and it's just a little bit of a departure from the normal kind of writing that you find on castingcross.com. But if you like fishing for trout in the mountains, if you like narrative, if you like fly fishing fiction, then certainly check it out. This week's recommendation on the podcast are soles from Corkers. Now, you cannot buy the wading boot soles if you don't have Corkers boots. But I have a number of different pairs of wading boots and shoes that I use for fly fishing. I actually did a video that has gotten a little bit of traction over on YouTube about how I choose which wading boots to use uh, depending on the different circumstances. But I know a lot of folks do have Corker's wading boots, and so I thought I would mention briefly why I absolutely love the carbide spike soles for fishing in the wintertime. So in New England and really, you know, down to the mid-Atlantic and then over west, if you are going to be fishing in the wintertime, even if there's not snow, there's going to be ice. And I like using the carbide spikes on my corkers wading boots because they really do dig in. I try to save them for the wintertime. I try not to use them on saltwater or something like that because I don't want to dull them. I want these things to grip in as good as they can when I'm walking on icy banks. So again, even if there's no snow on the ground, there's going to be ice. And there's ice in so many places if you think about it. Think about the places that are wet when you're fishing during the summertime. Those places are going to have ice in the wintertime. So these soles, they work well on rocks, they work well on moss, they work well on all sorts of stuff. 
but the carbide spikes are my absolute favorites. They actually sell aluminum hex discs as well as aluminum bars, and on these soles you can customize them, move them around, and, and they sell a blank one where you can then buy the different pieces and kind of combine them if you, if you see fit, and there's definitely value to that, depending on how you step, how you walk, what kind of waters you're fishing with different kind of stream bottoms or even just how you're getting from one place to to the water uh, you you can customize and, and play around with with the different components but I'm a huge fan of the carbide spikes again I, I have some that I use for freshwater in the winter time and they are also one of my soles of choice when I am on the nasty craggy rocks up here in New England in the salt water so I'll put a link to Corkers and just the soles on uh, the, the, the website I'm on castingacross.com on the show notes for this podcast. But definitely check them out. If you're looking for a new pair of wading boots, some new heavy-duty wading boots, then I would suggest taking a look at Corkers. I'm, I'm a big fan of my dark horse boots for whenever I am in more extreme conditions or I'm going to be on my feet for a very, very long time. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.